Welcome back to SCOTUS Pod. We are your weekly podcast seeking to demystify goings on at the Supreme Court, and we'll discuss interesting opinions, upcoming cases, personalities, concepts, and uh, the best part, you don't need to be a lawyer to enjoy. Um, although I, I hope that our analysis is uh, rigorous enough and, and, and useful that, that lawyers can enjoy us as well. I am your co-host, Ian Taranji. I'm an immigration lawyer in Washington, D.C. area. Uh, my and co-host, my co-host, Sandy. You're jumping in here, man. You're jumping in. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I am Sandy Hausler, and I am in New York City, and uh, I'm a appellate attorney here. Very good. Sandy, how are you? It's good to be back with you. I'm, I'm doing great, except uh, I don't think we've been actually doing this weekly, but hopefully someday. Did I say weekly? Oh, yes. <laughs> that's what I had. Uh, that's what I had written down there anyway. Yeah. Uh, at some point, we'll start doing this weekly, maybe. You know, that'd be awesome. Because uh, I always enjoy our talks, Sandy, about the Supreme Court, about the cases that are going on. And, you know, as we've mentioned before, for uh, both of our listeners, um, you know, this is a blockbuster term at the court, and there's a lot of really, really interesting cases. So today we're going to talk about um, a couple of cases that deal with uh, the federal government and religion um, and a lot of the thorny issues that surround that concept. Um, we're also going to have a great, great interview with Anna Salvatore uh, from High School SCOTUS. That's a, a blog about the Supreme Court. And uh, apparently she wants to talk, she wants to talk shop with us, Sandy, and, and, and discuss, uh, discuss a particular Supreme Court case coming up. Um, oh, she does. Yeah, indeed. Which case is she? She is going to be discussing Kelly versus the United States, which is commonly known as, as the Bridgegate case. It's the New Jersey Bridgegate scandal that rocked the political world some years back. Back when that was, yeah. it was wasn't 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 that a much simpler time, Sandy? When that uh, was the <laughs> that was a considered a political scandal. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> The good old days. Let's all let's all reminisce. Let's all reminisce. But the first case that we want to talk about, I think, um, is going to be interesting because it talks about a concept that we hear about a lot, and I think not a lot of people really truly understand what it's all about, and that is the electoral college, um, and obviously that has massive ramifications here in an election year. And um, I think uh, this case may have some ramifications going forward that we'll discuss. Sandy, why don't you lead us through this uh, Chiafalo case? Well, actually, there's two cases. Chiafalo is one of them, Chiafalo versus Washington, and the Colorado Department of State versus Baca. And they both raise the question of what, what is known as the faithless elector. Yeah, what is that? Well, here's what it is. A state has a statute. Each state has a statute. And it explains how the electors are divided up. In most states, though not all of them, the, the rule is that the electors are supposed to vote for the candidate uh, who had the most votes in that state. In other words, if a Democrat had most votes, in the, if the Democrats won, uh, in New Jersey, the New Jersey electors would vote for the candidate who was nominated by the Democratic Party. Okay. And um, there's quite the, the question rose in Washington and and in Colorado of whether the electors are required to do that, even if the statute says that. And um, in uh, Washington, it, they, they had a law that said that you have to you have to um, follow what the majority says, and if you don't, you get fined. So there was a there was an elector in in Washington who said, "I want to vote for Colin Powell for president, even though um, the majority of the state says Hillary Clinton should be the uh, person that." We, we that the electors cast their votes for. Can I ask a quick question? And Can I ask a quick question, Sandy? Um, sure. Are yeah. we talking then about states that have 
laws specifically designating that electors must vote for the popular vote winner in that state? Yeah, okay. that's, and I, okay. I think I said that. From the, yeah, not all states. By the way, not all states have it. There are some states, very few, but some states divide the electors by the proportion of you know, the vote. In other words, if, if Hillary Clinton had won sixty percent of the vote in that state, she'd get sixty percent of the electors, right. and uh, Trump would get the other forty because he won forty percent of the vote. Right, right. Okay. Per, 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 uh, assuming, of course, that that's what it was. I mean, if, uh, so this guy, this elector was was fined, and he went to court and challenged the fine, and. Ultimately, went up to the Washington Supreme Court. The Washington Supreme Court said, "Yeah, we can. States are allowed to require electors to vote a certain way." Now we're down in Colorado. Colorado has also has a law that says you follow the majority. The electors have to cast vote for the the candidate who won the majority of the uh, popular votes in the state. Um, it was a gentleman who want named Baca who wanted to vote for John. Kasichin in, and uh, he was removed from office, moved, removed his elector, and replaced. He brought 1983 action, saying that should, that shouldn't have been allowed, uh, and he lost in the district court, and it was reversed in the Tenth Circuit. So there's a conflict between the Tenth Circuit and the Washington Supreme Court. The, the Tenth Circuit saying that electors could go rogue if they want to. Under the First Amendment, now, right? Is, did the tent was the, was that was that the basis of the Tenth Circuit opinion? Well, it was Article Two and the uh, it wasn't the First Amendment. It was Article Two and um, Article Two states that that you know basically electors decide yeah. who, who becomes president. Correct. So it was Article, it was Article Two. At, at any rate, um, it was there was a conflict between. The, the two circuits and cert petitions were filed, and both these cases were granted cert last so, Friday. So at this point, nothing, nothing has been submitted except for cert petitions and opposition to cert petitions, and we are awaiting a date for argument this term. Yeah, I presume they got to brief it first, though. But um, do we yeah, have well, a yeah, do, do we have a sense of what is the argument uh, for invalidating these state laws? Is it that it runs afoul of Article Two is that? Well, yes, that's what that's what they're saying. They're saying that uh, there is a that this, that electors provide a federal function and states cannot interfere with uh, par- parties who are who are performing a federal function. And there is case law that says that you know, the electors are are performing a federal function. Now, it's, there's also on the other hand, there there is this case law which says that states have a whole bunch of authority over uh, over electors and how they're chosen, how this and that. It's not it, it's not so clear that the federal function aspect of uh, their position generally means that that uh, states have no have no uh, authority over them. On, on, on the contrary, states have a lot of authority on, on, over them. But yeah. the question is whether they whether that includes how they vote. Mm-hmm. And this is this is also I was talking with you earlier offline um, about an interesting uh, statute which is sort of running through the various states under which the states are saying that the electors have to vote for the candidate who wins the popular vote nationwide. Yeah, yeah. And that's 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 being that's being done because obviously uh, there have been these two big, two big uh, elections where the person who won the popular vote did not win in the electoral college. That being uh, George W. Bush, Vice, Vice President Gore, the Vice President Gore, in the in the in his his fight against uh, uh, Bush and Trump against uh, Hillary. Hillary had three million more votes, and I don't care what Trump says; she had three million more votes, and they were valid votes. And yet she did not win in the electoral college, which means that Trump won the election. Right, right. So, so, so the, then these, the, these laws are these laws are being enacted to kind of change that, so that that result can't happen. Right. Of course, you know it, 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 you have to have 
a lot of a lot of states following this rule, enacting these statutes before I, it really has any power. Right, oh, and, I, and I believe that we have right now states that have enacted that kind of a law. Um, uh, I believe that we're, that we're at somewhere between like 150 and 175 electoral votes. So it's not an insignificant number, and it is, um, you know, they're all blue states, and, and, you know, I'm not sure that we'll get to 270, but if we ever got to two, 270 electoral votes, I'm, I'm, I am positive that we would see a slew of court challenges. So, I mean, how do you think that this Chiafalo case could possibly play out in a, in a, in, in a future time? I mean, I, I don't think that this would happen for another 10 or 20 years, but, you know, I mean... Pfft. You know, it is, it is interesting, because the idea that a state could vote for candidate X but because other states voted for candidate Y could result in a, the electors of state X voting for the other candidate uh, is, is, is difficult to, uh, I think could be difficult for, uh, for politicians to handle. Yeah. Well, and depending, I, I on, depending, any, on who, yeah. depending on who is uh, benefiting from, from such a rule. Yeah, well, uh, it, it's always that. I'm talking about the, the, the losers. I'm not talking about the winners. The winners love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think, at the, I think at the end of the day, it, it's also a kind of, who are, the, who are the electors working for? Are they working for their state or are they working for the country? Good question. Federal, federal, uh, if federal function, maybe they're working for the country. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These guys are voting for their states. So one would think that their states can govern the, the state's vote. I mean, you're, you're, you're really dealing with a situation where the, the votes in the state may not even matter. I mean, if 90% of the votes went for Trump, for instance, in some state, and I don't know, uh, Amy Klobuchar wins the election, wins the wins the votes, the popular votes everywhere else. It doesn't matter that ni- that ninety percent of the population of a state voted for Trump; those right. votes would go to Klobuchar. It, it 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 seems odd. Let's just put it uh, I'll put it that way. Yeah, I mean, it, look, obviously, it's an it's an end run around the electoral college. If you could ever get to two hundred and seventy electoral uh, states that make up two hundred and seventy electoral votes who have passed such a law, it would it would be effectively an end run around the electoral college to make essentially the popular vote of the nation be the um, be the deciding factor uh, in who becomes in who becomes president. So um, we are going to follow up with on that case when. We um, when we get oral argument, and I'm very curious also to see the briefs and see uh, uh, how closely those arguments track, and whether the justices uh, express any such concerns about uh, you know kind of monkeying around with with state authorities on 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 voting in elections and also on the electoral college itself. So um, we're gonna move on really quickly here. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, a pair of cases that, you know, talk about the the, the separation or, or or lack thereof between church and state. Um, I want to discuss first with you, Sandy, uh, a case called Espinoza, Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. And this case functionally deals with public funding for religious schools. Um, Is that case... Has that case been set for argument, or has, where, where, where are we with that case? It was, it was just argued this week, in fact, um, and I, I, you know, I had some notes on the oral argument because there's potentially an issue that, that may prevent the court from getting to these sort of really thorny First Amendment issues. Um, but I also think that there's a, a federalism issue, federalism being kind of the, the, the notion that the federal government pulls back in overseeing how states interpret and execute their own laws. Um, it's kind of a deference to state government. Um, and, you know, I mean, to, to put not too fine a point on it, I mean, a lot of conservative jurists buy into uh, deeply held beliefs on, on, on federalism. And, and, and I'm not here to say that that's 
right or wrong. I have my own views, and sometimes I, I do agree with, with federalism, and other times not so much. Um, and that's just me. Uh, but so the question here, basically, as, as, as the Supreme Court said it, um, does it violate the religion clause or the equal protection clause to invalidate a generally available and religiously neutral uh, uh, student aid program simply because the program affords students choice of attending religious schools? So that's a mouthful here, but basically it's saying should taxpayers be able to fund religious schools? Let's talk a little bit uh, about the facts of this case. So. Montana institutes a tax credit program which gives a dollar for dollar credit, um, uh, uh, matching contributions to what's called a student scholarship organization. The SSO, this was uh, passed by the Montana legislature, signed by the governor into law. This funds tuition and scholarships for needy students attending private schools, and it just says for private schools. Now, the majority of private schools in the state of Montana do happen to be affiliated with religion. Um, the Montana Department of Revenue has rulemaking authority over this statute. And interestingly enough, the Montana Constitution has a strict provision against providing public funds to religious schools. So the Montana Department of Revenue says, look, this is not constitutional under the Montana Constitution, and as such, we are going to terminate this, this particular program, which was part of larger legislation, so they didn't invalidate the legislation, but they said that this program violates the Montana Constitution. So, go ahead. Sounds like you have a question there. Was it, yeah, wasn't there a case involving uh, repairing playgrounds or something uh, that dealt with a similar issue? Yeah, I, 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 I believe so. I believe so, and I, I think that was of a recent vintage, and I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the uh, on the name. Um, but yeah, I do. Be I do believe that there was, and and um, so the, yeah. does that case uh, provide the rule that w would be applied in this case? Well, the question, as as I understand it, and the the the, the question that the judges, the justices in oral argument were were concerned with, was uh, you know a First Amendment question, and also a question about whether. Um, a, a holding could invalidate, for example, a, a state charter charter school system. Uh, whether if they are saying that that discriminating against religious schools and invalidating on on that basis, uh, if that violates the First Amendment, then you know you, you could you could be instituting massive changes into the system, into the 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 school system, especially in states like New York, which have billions of dollars you know put into charter schools i mean that's a that's a, a potentially massive impact so um well wait a second i'm not i'm not sure i follow how does how does the charter no, this this right this rule does not do anything with respect to, to this whether schools can exist or not it's only whether they get the benefit of the tax credit that's correct that's correct and so the justices, the justices are saying that that charter schools right now carve the the charter schools receive usually federal federal funds, and there's a carve out for religious schools. And so, if there's a situation in which the justices say, "Look, Montana should not have have uh, um, uh, should not have 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 pulled out these schools, should not have invalidated this program." On the basis of the Montana uh, uh, Constitution, then uh, you know, it, if if they're invalidating that action, then there's potentially application in in another oh, okay. in another instance. That was just Chief Justice Roberts who who raised that concern, sort of like what's the what's the big picture impact uh, of, of of a ruling here that says, look, your actions are discriminatory against religion, and therefore. Uh, you know, unconstitutional, and he's looking at the larger application of the. Uh... And or what were the what were the responses of the parties on that to that question? So predictably, um, the the petitioner, the uh, Espinoza. So Espinoza 
just really, really briefly. So she's a mother. She sends her son to a religious school. She indicated in you know aff affidavits and at trial that she relies on this scholarship program, um, and and as such, uh, the state of Montana invalidating the program is a is is damage and harm to her. Um, so there was a lot of discussion at oral argument whether you know she even has standing and you know we can get into we can get into that a little bit here but so espinoza's argument of course is that yes when you discriminate against religious schools you're 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 in violation of the first amendment your actions are unconstitutional and that the supreme court should rule as such and the state of montana you know makes several arguments one like I said, that she doesn't have standing, which is just basically the ability to sue a, a real tangible harm that, that, that would accrue to you from losing this case. Um, and, and, and also that, uh, uh, that the, the Montana Supreme Court and the Montana Constitution, you know, that, there's the, that there should be respect and deference, but also that, that the First Amendment the First Amendment doesn't require uh, uh, this, this sort of facial neutrality and that taking this action, especially I think in light of the Montana Constitution, uh, doesn't, isn't violative of the First Amendment. So, you know, it's an interesting, an interesting case that I think um, has potential ramifications wider than, you know, this, this relatively modest tuition uh, subsidy program, which was about like $300, I think that, there were, that, you know, that she was supposed to get, so. Um, yeah, but there's a, lot more, there's a lot more at stake than uh, no doubt. Yeah. just that small amount. Right, 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 right. That's why, that's why it's at the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I always, mm -hmm. find, I always find these issues of, um, you know, religion and education and, 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 and public funding, these are, these are always super interesting cases, and I feel like we're in the midst of and are going to continue down uh, sort of like a reversal. I think for a long time, uh, you know, through the, the 70s and 80s and, you know, even into the 90s, it was just completely verboten to, to, to use public money for religious education. Um, and, you know, a lot of conservatives, being very religious people, they have, you know, tried many, many, many different ways to kind of get around that and get some money for these, for these religious schools. And, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how this one's going to turn out. And I kind of suspect that it might turn out on standing because Mrs. Espinoza, uh, she's actually not a taxpayer. So it's not even her tax money that's, co that's going into this program. And Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor and Kagan, you know, all made the point that, you know, the school is the recipient of the money and the school is the one really suffering the tangible harm. Um, and yet the school is not a party. So well, wait a second. Isn't uh, Mrs. Ms. Espinoza uh, being denied the tax credit that she would normally get? She is. And that's the argument that, that she's making. Um, but the. Um, but the the many of the justices seem to indicate that that appeared to them to be harm, you know, two and three steps removed from the actual harmed party. Hmm. Interesting. I I would not have thought that. Okay. Certainly, Kagan, Ginsburg, and Sotomayor they spent a lot of time and they hit her attorneys right out of the chute um, with with that argument. You know, explain to me how you have standing, basically, and. Um, you know, so at, at one point it looks like Ginsburg and Sotomayor and Kagan, you know, ganging up on 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 them. I guess I guess they're like the Supreme Court squad, uh, ganging up on <laughs> ganging up on this guy. Uh, and then Chief Justice Roberts jumps in, and he seemed to have many of the same concerns on standing. Uh, so uh, we may end up we may end up when we when 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 this opinion comes down, we may end up. Uh, be sitting here having a, a, a very different discussion about this case than um, than what we're having right now. Did Breyer have anything to say about this? Uh, Breyer's issues, I think, were more First Amendment focused. Um, okay. So, yeah. So tell us about your case, which potentially 
implicates First yeah, Amendment this is issues. Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania. And this is, yet again, another case about the Affordable Care Act. Mm. The court seems to have an insatiable uh, desire to, to uh, deal with cases that will chip away or, or overrule or whatever. They can't, the quit, Affordable they can't, Care Act. They can't quit the ACA. <laughs> well. None of us can. None of us can, yes, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> now, this case involved the court the question of whether the federal government can lawfully exempt religious objectors from the regulatory requirement to provide health plans that include contraceptive services. You know, the, the Catholics don't like people, <laughs> they're their people anyway, yeah. to uh, utilize uh, contraception. I think I can speak so, for the Catholics. I think I can speak for the Catholics. They don't want anybody using it. <laughs> not, <laughs> well, just, not just their people. Nobody that they're paying is going to get contraception. That's 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 the way they feel. We're not going to do it, and uh, we're not. We 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 don't want this to be in the Affordable Care Act. I'm a I'm a I'm and, a recovering I'm a recovering Catholic, so I'm I'm very pro contraception. Just for the just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> but you have but you do have a number of kids. I do, hey you know I do that's true. <laughs> this is a very visual medium, obviously, but. Uh, our engineer Pamela just busted out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get it together okay, here. This now, is a very professional podcast, and we are we are not going down that road. We're good friends. We can make jokes <laughs> about each other like that. Sandy calls me up the other night, and and I'm sitting there, and I'm and I'm telling my wife, "Go up there and yell at them." <laughs> and Sandy's like, "Oh, okay, that's how that's how it goes in your household." So it's a little. Okay, getting getting back to That's this case. Just a little peek now, under the dress there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the Affordable Care Act provides that you know any uh, health care plans provided by employers has to include contraceptive services. However, um, there was a rule enacted by the HHS, uh, Health and and uh, Human Services. And human services uh, that provides an exemption for churches and for not-for-profit corporations that meet certain qualifications. Uh, they have to be a religious organization, and they have to um, oppose providing contraceptive services. So it's pretty, it's pretty not not that hard to overcome that. If, if you're a Catholic uh, organization, you could probably get this exemption. Um, and uh, after that, after that provision went through uh, notice and comment and got enacted, and uh, was the law was the law. Uh, there were a couple of cases that came down. One of them was Hobby Lobby, which I'm well not sure, but I, I suspect that many people have heard of. Mm-hmm. And that Hobby Lobby established the rule that this exemption. Is not cannot be limited just not for profit religious corporations, but it can only it can also apply to uh, for profit corporations where the owners uh, not all corporations uh, not for profit closely held corporations where the owners of the corporation had a religious uh, objection to providing contraceptive services. Yeah, and it's closely held corporations. I mean, you can't be like a shareholder yeah. of GM and be like, um, I have religious objections to the GM employees. Right. Uh, that's why, that's why I, I yeah, uh, yeah, made yeah. sure that was very clear. Right. Only uh, closely held corporations right. get, get the exemption under lobby, uh, liber, uh, Hobby Lobby. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a later case called Wheaton College versus Burwell, which uh, also uh, changed a little bit this rule, the, the, this exemption. Under that case, it so the Supreme Court held that you don't. And ha- in, in, under the regu- under the uh, regulation, you also had to uh, fill out a form and send it send it in and tell them that you were you were exercising this exemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, under under Wheaton College, you didn't have to fill out the form. And some of, some of the objectors were saying, well, if we fill out this form. And we send it in. We're basically giving the uh, employees a method of getting contraception because if they don't get it from the from the uh, 
from the employer. They get it under a special service, and they didn't want to do that either. And the uh, the court said, you know, you don't have to do it. This you don't have to send in the form. You just have to note notify the HSS that you're not going to comply for religious reasons. That's enough. Mm-hmm. So after these two cases came down, uh, the objection was modified. There were interim final rule. There was an interim final rule, which also underwent uh, the uh, comment and, and notice provisions, and was enacted and in place. And um, then Trump came into office, and things changed. That seems Trump to be. That's, wanted, that's, by the way, that's a that's a theme in a lot of different cases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. then, well, then Trump, Trump came happened. In. <laughs> Trump happened, and things changed a lot. He decided he wanted to make it even easier, and not only was was it now now he in, introduced some more changes to the rule, including a provision that said that you don't, it doesn't have to be religious reasons that you don't want to give uh, contraceptive services. You have moral reasons. You have you, you feel it's wrong. You don't as long as you follow this rule, you you, you get this exemption and then, then you don't have to provide those services. Okay, Pennsylvania decided they didn't like that and they filed suit and said that this that they can't that they can't do that. Now they had some real good technical reasons also for for um, challenging this rule because unlike the Obama administration which had their notice and comment period before uh, the rules were enacted. Trump, the, the HHS under Trump, put out these these uh, these regulations without the notice and, and comment period. Yeah, and that violates the, the Administrative Procedures Act, right? Yes, which violated the yes, and though later on they did have some after the after the. Uh, Interim final rules had been enacted without, you know, that that, that period um, to make the comments. Uh, after after the, they enacted a final rule which incorporated them and didn't change anything, and then they had some period which these which the comments were elicited. However, it's a little different. It's a little different. At least the Third Circuit found that it was a, a little bit different. When, when you're starting from step one, whether these regulations should be put in place, and what, and when you are saying we have these regulations, should we throw them out? Different. So the the uh, Third Circuit, among other things, found that uh, the new regulations violated the uh, Administrative Procedure Act, but it also found, and this is which really goes back to the question presented in this case, it also found that the um, that the um, is it a first amendment? No, no, no. This is the regulatory requ- the requirements. Oh, the the Affordable Care Act did not provide the uh, the administration administrative bodies to enact these kind of uh, blanket exemptions. And without such a uh, provision, the uh, administrative agencies weren't allowed to make these exemptions. Now, this to me seems to be a, a problem. I mean, obviously this is an issue which the court is gonna decide, has, this has been briefed, there hasn't been done anything yet. But the first, if the if parties have a first amendment objection to it, it would seem that there would have to be some way to deal with it. Is that going to is, is that strictly going to be through the courts, or can administrative any agencies kind of shortcut this, uh, anticipate this, and take care of it as as an exemption? Well, it seems like that's what the, that, that's what the uh, the administrative agencies thought. They enacted these these exemptions with the understanding that there would be a problem if a uh, church, for instance, or a religious corporation. Um, had it had had uh, religious problems with um, the with the, with the uh, contraceptive requirement. 
and therefore they they made they made this exemption so so the, to kind of shortcut the way but but the third circuit said no 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 you're not allowed to make these exemptions it isn't provided for so i'm not sure where that leaves leaves the first amendment in this case mm-hmm. whether the courts have to decide that there has to be some kind of exemption for these courts for for this uh, issue or whether there can't be exemptions if there can't be exemptions, what does that mean? Does that mean that that the uh, that the uh, law as it stands could possibly violate the, the First Amendment? Okay, that that's mm. stuff that we're gonna, that's going to have to be discussed later. Uh, later on the line, I'll be interested to see what the briefs say about this, if anything, and I'll be interested to see what the court has to say about it. Will there be severability arguments? You think if uh, if it's mm. Well, I guess the court could could uh, strike the uh, just that portion of requirement. It could yeah. do that, mm. Mm. but I'm based on. Oh, and I, I, did, I did want to raise just the point. There's there's a, there's a standing issue also because Little Sisters of the Poor was not was not a party to the action initially. It was an intervener, and uh, in another case. Going that another actually another Colorado case, there was an injunction issued, national nationwide injunction issued against uh, the contraceptive uh, requirement, and so even if this in, in this case they uh, they rule against they rule in favor of Pennsylvania, the the contraceptive uh, requirement will not be you know. Ab- be uh, be enforceable. Right, right. So here's a here's but my but my, my my issue on that my problem with that is once the court decides this case, that's gonna in effect decide the Colorado case. And within seconds uh that exempt that uh injunction is gonna be vacated most likely if the court rules in favor of Pennsylvania. So let me ask you a question, uh based on your reading here. Um let's let's assume Let's assume that uh, that the federal government can get over uh, the administrative and procedural hurdles. Mm-hmm. If this if this becomes a question of First Amendment, um, you know, similar in in some ways to Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby wasn't a pure First Amendment case, but but um, right. but it certainly implicated First Amendment issues. So how, how do you think how do you think how do you think the the justices are going to come down on this one? Well, they did decide Hobby Lobby, and mm-hmm. uh, if anything, the court has got more conservative with the uh, inclusion of uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Was and, and, oh, right, Gorsuch was not on the case then. Was not on the court I then. I don't think Gorsuch was on Hobby Lobby. Yeah, because Hobby Lobby happened during the the Obama administration. Gorsuch was not right. By, you're you're by correct. Trump, so that's, yeah, that's absolutely true. So they've got. Well, of course, Gorsuch doesn't really change anything. So Scalia would have voted the same way. For right. Sure. Right. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm not sure what Kennedy would have done. I kind of, yeah, that's true. How did Kennedy, how did Kennedy vote in, in, in Hobby Lobby? I was, I assume he vo- he voted with the majority. I assume. Yeah. So maybe the the change in the court would have absolutely no difference. I think uh, mm-hmm. most likely they would follow Hobby Lobby and. Yeah, yeah, and Hobby Lobby seemed to me more decided on on the statutory issues than the constitutional issues. Um, you know, the Supreme Court, I think, generally wants to avoid making broad constitutional pronouncements when it has a, a, a smaller means of deciding, a lesser means of deciding the case. Um, and that's why I think we, we may find... Um, so the question is whether it exempts the requirement to uh, provide contraceptive services. And if it does that, it doesn't necessarily mean that employers can't provide those services, but they don't have to provide those they services. They don't have to, right. So, so it's a question of whether... Uh, the employ- employers, most of whom don't really care one way or the other, in, in you know, in the abstract, um, will not provide those services because uh, of expense. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how expensive it is to to add those services to your uh, your policy. And but, do we know? Um, do we know when oral argument is on this one? Just sir, it was just granted okay. last week. No oral argument. No no briefs yet. Great. Nothing. Well, I look forward to following back up once we have oral argument and maybe we'll get some more clarity on the issues that are bedeviling the justices on that case. 
Um, but we're going to take a, just a really brief break here, and uh, we are going to get Ana Salvatore on the line to talk about high school SCOTUS. I can't wait to have this discussion. All right. Okay, and we're back. So we have uh, a great guest here, Sandy. I would like you to introduce uh, our guest for today's show. Well, I have to say, when we started this podcast, and actually well before we started this podcast, I always had in mind that in addition to talking about the cases, we would also try to bring on guests who uh, provide something that uh, would be of interest to people in the Supreme Court. And But I never... Never in my wildest dreams, uh, probably about a year, until about a, about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, would have ever thought that I would find a group of Supreme Court nerds from high school <laughs> who are doing a blog about the Supreme Court. It's like one of those things where you, where you say, how could this be? And on the other hand, you're saying, how awesome. <laughs> we have Anna Salvatore with us, who is the nerd who started this whole thing and uh yeah welcome welcome to, welcome to scotus thank you so much i'm patient zero for the supreme court nerd population <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure well, that that's the I case be- but, <laughs> but anyway <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't become a supreme court nerd till i got to law then then all hell broke loose i was a supreme um, court nerd in the crib in the crib i was a supreme court nerd crib. yeah oh wow no not really mm. Not really. Kindergarten, <laughs> kindergarten uh, Yeah, it was at least it was at least kindergarten, yeah. Like once I started reading, yeah. Why don't we talk about Kelly versus United States, the Bridgegate case? Sure. I'd love to. So Kelly versus United States is the Bridgegate case. Everyone has kind of heard about it in the news already. It involves Bridget Kelly, who was the deputy chief of staff for Chris Christie in twenty thirteen, and she wanted to punish the mayor of Point Reed for not endorsing Christie in the previous election. She did so by moving toll lanes on the George Washington Bridge that were usually reserved for court day traffic. It was a complete disaster, and she was found guilty of violating federal wire fraud laws with some kind of associate in the office, William Baroni. Um, so the Third Circuit upheld her conviction, and now the Supreme Court is reconsidering it. And what, and what happened at the oral argument, which was just recently held? The justices were pretty divided about whether Kelly committed property fraud, but they seem to be leaning in her favor. I think especially Justice Breyer and Justice Kagan seem to be on Kelly's side, despite disapproving of the Lane movement, which was, I really can't emphasize how catastrophic that was. Um, So anyway, Justice Breyer told the lawyer representing the U.S. that everything a public official does requires time, money, other kinds of intangible property. Um, and Breyer and Kagan think that obtaining property must be the main goal of the crime for it to be property fraud. You can't just incidentally use property while lying because every kind of government action involves some kind of property and often involves lies. Then you'd just be throwing around 30-year prison sentences all the time, um, and it would resemble a form of honest services fraud that the court has recently limited in McDonald and Skrilling, or Skilling, I think it is. Skilling, yeah. Yeah. So that was Justice Breyer, Kagan, and perhaps the majority of the court. Um, But Justice Alito was a little more critical of Kelly. Um, He said, money is property. Um, Money was wasted when Kelly closed the lanes, and thus she had obtained the property for personal revenge. Um, All I can say, I I come from Bergen County, and that was big news in Bergen County. And they would have hung her if they could have. Yeah, I was about, I was about sure. to say, we're we're are, are Kagan and Breyer are they are they are they New Jerseyites or New Yorkers or anything? Because uh, it seems to me like that the fury the fury alone, like Sotomayor must have just been seething, <laughs> sitting there yeah. thinking about you know five hour traffic jam getting across the GW Bridge. A little inside. Baseball yeah, I think she made some pretty critical comments during the argument, as did many of the justices. They kept on saying like even if. Kelly is not convicted for property fraud. This is, of course, not good behavior by public officials. And then there are avenues through state courts or even just other types of fraud laws that can cover this behavior, even if it's not um, the wire fraud statute. So understanding that making predictions about how the court will ultimately rule and decide can be a a fool's errand. Um, Mm -hmm. All that said, I'm going to ask you to predict what do you how do you how do you think? 
How do you see the court coming down on this one? It is a little bit difficult because Justice Kavanaugh only asked one question. Of course, Jeff Nunn, mm-hmm. Justice Thomas, I mean, what do you think? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think judging by the questions at oral argument and the recent trend in this type of case, um, I think the court will rule for Kelly. Mm-hmm. And by trend, I mean McDonald and Skilling, which were both decided within the past 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. These cases show that the court is trying to limit prosecutors' ability in fraud cases. The court um, in Skilling, for example, said that the federal fraud statutes, um, or what am I saying? Um, bribery and kickbacks are the only kind of um, dishonest services fraud mm. that can be prosecuted. You can't just say a public official lied, so that's fraud. Um, so I think. Just, yeah, just judging by that trend, I think they will try to limit um, the government from using mm. sweeping language and calling Kelly's behavior fraud. Yeah, that's, 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 that's really good insight. I also think, um, in addition to the judge's questions at oral argument, just the grant of cert or not oftentimes can, can give a clue. And here we had, it sounded like the Third Circuit reversed the conviction, and when the court takes it up, there's sort of a, at least in my mind anyway, I kind of defer to the court, make some correction to the third, to the third circuit. Obviously that's not always the case, but um, that's at least my, mm-hmm. my kind of like my default setting on that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Usually they don't take a case just to affirm. So I would agree with that for sure. Okay. Well, now um, I want to ask you a few questions about uh, about um, high school SCOTUS. How did you, how did you, when did you first discover that you were a Supreme Court nerd? It happened during a study hall in freshman year. I was kind of bored reading the New York Times, um, didn't apparently have homework to do, and found an article about a case called Maslenyak versus United States, which is uh, an immigration case, but more to do with the naturalization process and what happens if you lie during the naturalization process. So, read the article, was kind of surprised by how interested I was, then read the entire like oral argument transcript that was linked to it, and from then on, I haven't stopped much. Mm. The past couple months, I've not done too much Supreme Court blogging. I've been really, really dormant, and I've just been like binging novels. But yeah, for the most part, since that freshman year study hall, I've just been trying to learn as much as I could through OIA and SCOTUS blog and different Supreme Court books. It's been really fun. That's awesome. That is really, uh, now, really awesome. Now, Go ahead. Now, um, you're not you're not the only uh, member of high school SCOTUS now, right? Definitely not. No, there are. I don't want to mix up the number, but the fact that I don't know the number is pretty fantastic. I see, 11, I see eleven. I see eleven. I see eleven contributors on the site. Yeah, that sounds about right. I'm looking at the names. Um, it's been probably the best part of the entire blog experience to meet these kids who are my age and who have a weird niche interest. So they're from North Carolina, um, California, New York city, Minnesota, and even a kid from my high school just joined. And so we've gotten to talk about like patent law cases and the 14th amendment and random Twitter feuds together. Um, it's, <laughs> it's so fun to have uh, friends who share your interests. Um, That's really cool. So, yeah. And you actually had a, uh, face-to-face meeting down at the court uh, test term, right? I mean, the last term. Uh, time is kind of a blur for me right now. It was not this past term. It was um, the year before. Pretty sure that was 2018 when we went to the court on, like, the second day. Um, and it was pretty incredible. We, we saw a case called Weyerhaeuser um, that had to do with endangered frogs and then an employment discrimination case about age called Mount Lemon. Um but it would have been fun even if the cases were boring. It was, it was just nice to meet each other and uh, just continue the conversations face-to-face. Yeah, very cool. Now, I, understand you met, I understand you had a meeting with uh, Justice Kagan. Yes, yes, I did. Tell me about it. I... Okay, it was um, this past fall, and I went down to D.C. and went into her chambers. I was so nervous beforehand that I was, basically incapacitated i was just like <laughs> sitting on the bench with my dad like trying to anticipate what i was going to say it was so stupid but I, I was excited and nervous and everything um and then it happened so she she was really nice and gave me 
think about like 40 minutes of her time and we just talked in her office. Um, Everything from like what she was like as a high school student, which I'd always wondered about, um, to different books on the wall because she had this massive bookcase right on uh, my left. So pretty wide ranging conversation and I will not forget a second of it. So that's something that cleared up in December. I found out I got into Princeton, and that's where I'm going to go next year. That's fantastic. And law school? Law school as well, you're thinking? Um, I'm not sure. I I don't know. A lot of people um, right off the bat say, oh, you're going to law school. Where do you want to go? Which is kind of funny. Uh Um, I don't know. I don't don't know anything. But I, I think it would be a pretty cool experience, depending on what kind of classes I take in college and how much I take to it. Um, yeah, that's definitely in the mix. That's fantastic. Well, you are a very impressive, uh, uh, young lady and, uh, I can tell that there's much success in your future awaiting you. So thank you so Absolutely. much. I'm very, I, I'm very proud of you and, uh, getting into, getting into Princeton was just, uh, I think it was in the cards for you, but it's remarkable nonetheless. Indeed, indeed. Thank it you is. so much. Well, you were one of the first people who found out, Sandy, because we had been planning the podcast that day, um, <laughs> that afternoon. <laughs> you said, "Tell me, tell me, tell me," and uh, I did. So very exciting night, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to take the train to DC from Princeton to New York and explore. Um, yeah, just really excited. One last question: mm-hmm. What happens to SCOTUS to high school SCOTUS once you graduate? I think I'm going to leave it as an archive on the internet. And if anyone from my school or somebody from around the country wants to take it up, I'd be happy to let them. I just, I find it hard to imagine myself keeping it up in college when already now I'm kind of faltering and like, I don't know, just <laughs> going to like the temptations of books and reading and reading as much as I can. I, I want to do so much. So it's hard to, keep up the blog but well, I don't know do you'll, it all you'll definitely find out it'll be do, on Twitter do it do it all do everything that interests you try everything that interests you um, you sound like a very very impressive person uh, I'm so thrilled that you were able to join us on SCOTUS pod today um, and that actually Sandy is going to end our episode here today we made it in just under the wire Sandy this has been a lot of fun we always get a chance to geek out on the Supreme Court, and, and hopefully people find our analyses interesting. Um, Anna, again, thank you. Anna, sorry. <laughs> I'm Hispanic. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Yeah. It's been really fun. All right, great. Take care, Anna. All right. Bye. Well, Sandy, you take care as well. Bye-bye, Anna, and goodbye to our viewers, yep. our listeners. All right.